this morning, but it feels good to be here this morning. I hope you feel that way too. As we um, <clears throat> look into the new year, I think every single one of us have a, a more factor that we're processing at some level of our thinking. Do we have a PowerPoint slide on there? Oh, okay, there we go. Could be on, it, it, does it get on the back or not? I'm getting used to this here. We have a more factor that we're processing at some level. Uh, we all hope for more in some way this year, more money, more friends, more opportunities. Uh, for some of us, more free time. For me, this weekend, it's more sleep. That's what New Year's resolutions are all about, too. I, I will do this so I can have more strength, more energy, better health, more time. In one of our teachings last summer, I, I referred to Brene Brown, who's a, a social work researcher and writer and speaker. Uh, some of you have um, read some of her stuff. One of the most popular of all TED Talks is one she did about the more factor that is an epidemic in our culture. She was researching the, the, the whole phenomena of, of narcissism, uh, a sort of a radical self-obsession, self-orientation in the context of our culture. And, and the first thing that her research surfaced was a link between narcissism and what she called the never enough problem, which is another way, the, the, sort of the other side of the coin, right, of talking about the more factor. She quotes another author who, who talks about the scarcity um, as, about this whole scarcity day idea as the great lie. And here's what that author says, for me and for many of us, our first waking thought of the day is, we look backward and we say, I didn't get enough sleep. The next one as we look forward is, I don't have enough time. Whether true or not, she says, that thought of not enough occurs to us automatically before we even think to question or examine it. We spend most of the hours in the days of our lives hearing, explaining, complaining, and worrying about what we don't have enough of. Before we even sit up in bed, before our feet touch the floor, we're already inadequate, already behind, already losing, already lacking something, and by the time we go to bed at night, our minds are racing with a litany of what we didn't get or didn't get done that day. As you look into, your, in, into this year, what is the never enough fear that's raising its head in your mind? How do you fill in the blank in this, these phrases? Never what enough? Never enough what? Never good enough? No matter what is said or how it is said by our mother, our boss, at church, what we hear is, you're never good enough. Never smart enough? First semester of school, that's for some of us, our first, first week of the semester. Never thin enough, never powerful enough, never successful enough, confident enough, can't do enough, never safe enough, never courageous enough, never loved enough and affirmed enough. Could go on and on, right? I'm wondering though if the scarcity problem is a little more complex than just saying it's all a great lie. Could it be that we do have a scarcity problem, and the lie 
has more to do with the different directions we go to and address an underlying not enough issue in our hearts that is very real. Many of those never enough struggles are real issues, and I, I don't want to minimize them. But all of those never enough struggles are also compounded and crippling us unless we see the underlying never enough issue of all humanity and the overarching and all-encompassing more resource that God is offering us and inviting us to come to terms with. More. Jesus. Jesus is the core, the all-embracing more that our hearts are looking for. And until we embrace and grow in allowing Jesus to be more in me, for me, through me, we will never truly be satisfied in those never enough frustrations we have. So what if our New Year's resolution, the, the banner over our goals and desires for this year was simply more Jesus? This morning we're beginning a teaching series from, from now until Easter on the New Testament book called The, the Gospel by Mark. Turn there in your Bible app or download a Bible app quickly and, uh, and turn there. It's the second book in the New Testament, the second of four gospel accounts, we call them, the gospel accounts, the, the accounts of the life, teaching, and purpose and work of Jesus. It seems to me that the, that the best title we could give this book and what it's trying to point us toward is simply more Jesus. I'm going to read the first 20 verses of chapter 1, and we're not going to have it on the screen, so look in your Bibles, follow along as we read it. Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in the Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once, the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. 
At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired man and followed him. The beginning of the gospel, the good news, of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. We're going to spend most of our time this morning on this verse and on verse 15 and just tie the rest together between these two verses. So, so Mark doesn't begin this writing by introducing himself or, you know, this long extended introduction. He just dives right in. Like the rest of the book, he doesn't waste any words. He just cuts right to the chase. The beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, the accounts of Jesus' life, um, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, sort of the parallel accounts, they're, they're, they're actually some of the toughest um, books of the Bible to sort of teach through and work through because, well, quite frankly, they don't seem to speak directly to, to what we call practical life issues and decisions we're facing. And, and one of the major questions as you read through the Gospels about Jesus is, so how much of what Jesus did and said is, or, or what Jesus did, for example, is, is descriptive? It, it describes accurately what happens, but how much is actually prescriptive that we're supposed to model ourselves after that? Like we, we, we say, well, you know, what would Jesus do? Well, the only way you find out what Jesus would do is what he did. So slipping through a door without a closed door with, you know, how, how much are we supposed to do? It's, it's sometimes unclear, and there's some disagreement over that. With the exception of the Sermon on the Mount, which is probably sort of a Cole's note summary of Jesus' teaching, and, and maybe he didn't actually teach the whole thing in order at one time, like it says, but, but with the exception of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the Gospels, and especially Mark, they say over and over and over again that Jesus spent a lot of time teaching, but none of them give any content, extended content of those teachings. Jesus sometimes spent entire blocks, at least a whole morning, teaching, like, like if the Sermon on the Mount, for example. If, you, if he did teach it at once, you, could, you can read through that whole sermon in, what, 20 minutes? Right? Mark is mostly narrative, tells us, tells us that Jesus taught, but never records much of it. Why? Here's why. Because the, the gospel accounts, somehow I get ahead of myself all the time. Is that me? The gospel accounts are basically telling us what Jesus did to demonstrate who he is and what that means for us and what Jesus did to make us his 40% of the content of the Gospel of Mark is actually the last week of Jesus' life, talking about his entrance to Jerusalem and his death on the cross. 40%, that's that second one, what Jesus did to make us his. And some pretty blunt statements about what that means. So, the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Son of God. Interesting statement when you think about it, because Mark says he's starting at the beginning, 
But he mentions nothing about what we think of as the beginning of Jesus' earthly life. There's no story about Jesus' birth. Boom, it's right in Jesus coming in onto the scene as an adult. He tells us nothing about Christmas. He jumps right to the time when Jesus came on the scene as an adult to declare who he was and what that means. Now, that's especially interesting because most scholars think that Mark is the, is the, original, the, the original gospel, the, the, the first of the biblical accounts of Jesus' life that were written down. And it was among the first books around which there was consensus that it should be included in what we call the New Testament. So what's he saying when he says the beginning? Well, there's a bit of debate about that. Some think maybe it's just a, it refers to the introduction to the book. Now, if it is, nobody seems to know how far that introduction goes. Uh, it's not really clear. I'm with those who think that when he says the beginning, he's referring to the whole book of Mark. The whole book of Mark is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But beginning in what way? Well, that word beginning, RK, can, can, can have two sort of primary uses. One is sort of a, a temporal sense, a time sense, the first in time. The other one is more uh, metaphorical, sort of foundational. The first in terms of the core, the essence. Mark is probably, probably in one sense using it in both of these ways, and I'll show you why. But this, this book of Mark is sort of what we might call a stripped-down gospel, the essence, the beginning, the core of what Jesus started. It's like, it's like the seed out of which something grows. The seed is the beginning. It's, it's like the heart of which everything flows. I think that's how Mark is using it because it's widely recognized when Mark says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, especially when you read through that first paragraph and you know anything about the Old Testament stories, you'll see there's all kinds of allusions to the Old Testament. And this statement, the beginning, is a reminder of how the whole Bible begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth with this snappy, direct allusion <laughs> Mark is making his thesis statement, and that is this, that in Jesus, in everything that Jesus did, and only in Jesus, God is beginning a new creation, a recreation. God is fulfilling the promise he made to Adam and Eve in what is sometimes called the curse in Genesis chapter 3. B before he announces his judgment on Adam and Eve, God, God pronounces judgment, a curse on the evil one who drew humanity under his leadership by luring them into thinking that God didn't have their best interests at heart. And God comes on the scene and his first statement of judgment is on, uh, on the serpent who we later find out is the evil one. I will put hostility between you and the woman, he says, between your offspring and her offspring. Her offspring will attack your head, will crush your head, and you will attack her offspring. Offspring's heel. He's referring to the cross. I think I agree with the writer who says with, that with the possible exception of John 3.16, God loved the world so much he gave his one only son. Whoever believes in him will not die, perish, but have eternal life. With the exception of John 3.16, no verse in the Bible is more crucial and definitive than this verse here. What Mark is saying is, folks, in Jesus, the new creation, the restoring of God's design for all creation, and especially his design for you and I as humans, the recreation has begun. 
The ball is rolling. Now that is the ultimate and good news, isn't it? Are you in? So the beginning is, is really the entire book of Mark because everything in this book, everything about Jesus is just the beginning. And if we look at it this way, that actually fits with the Gospel of Luke, right? Um, the Gospel of Luke and, and the book of Acts, which talks about what happens after Jesus left, are written, both written by Luke. They're written to the same person, a guy by the name of Theophilus. And the book of Acts starts this way. He says, in my former book, the Gospel of Luke, I wrote all about what Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven. And now, in the book of Acts, he says, I'm going to record for you what the risen Jesus is continuing to do in the world to bring to, to, bring to fruition what he began. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, who is what? The Christ, the Son of God. Now, when I see those four words together, Jesus, Christ, Son, God. The first thing I think of is what was probably the earliest symbol of Christianity. The earliest symbol of the identity of followers of Jesus was what? A cross? No. Some people think you can't really be a church unless there's a cross there. Well, the early church didn't begin with a cross. The earliest symbol of the identity of followers of Jesus was a fish. A fish. Do you know why? It's because the letters of the word for fish in the Greek language, the letters actually form an acrostic in which each letter is the first letter of a core identity of Jesus. The first letter, iota, is the first letter of Jesus, Yesu. The second letter, Christos, was the first letter of Christ, which was the Hebrew or the, the Greek translation of, of the Hebrew word Messiah. Jesus Christ. That's not his first name and last name. The way we hear it in our world today, it's like people think Jesus is first name, Christ is last name. No. It was a core title he was given. And the next two letters. All right. The next two letters, theta and, and upsilon, are God, Son. God, the Son. God in human form, which, by the way, was an affront to Caesar, because what was Caesar called? Caesar was called God, the Son. No, Jesus is God, the Son. And the last letter, Savior. Is the only one of those words that isn't in Mark's title, although Jesus himself in the Gospel of Mark talks about the purpose of his coming was to die as a ransom, a savior for our sins. Tradition has it that uh, in the days of the Roman Empire, when Christians were being marginalized and persecuted because they had a God who was not Caesar, you never knew who, who you'd meet that would report to you or abandon you, even, you know, as you met people on the street and there was a lot of suspicion, as, as there is today in, in some uh, um, totalitarian regimes. 
But Christians still wanted to believe in a sense of togetherness and community, and sometimes you'd, you'd bump into somebody who you thought, well, it's probably a Christian, but you didn't know. And, and so what they would do is, is they would, um, the one person as you're talking, they would just take their foot in the sand and draw this arc like that. And if the other one wanted to identify as a Christian and say, yeah, well, I'm in, he would just reach out his toe and draw the arc the other way. A fish. Because that was a silent statement of identity, of affirmation. About what? About a leader who would set them free, set them on a straight course, who was loyal to them and would not abandon them, and one day all of the kingdoms of this world, even Rome, would become the kingdom of our God on his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God. Over Christmas, I decided to re-engage a, a social media platform I hadn't used for about five years. Um, I used it when I was working in the, more in the business world, and, and I, I saw a name there that I thought was a potential connection because it was a familiar name being that one in four people in the world come from his culture and that both of his names are very common names in his culture. I wasn't sure if this was the guy. Uh, I thought it was, but I reached out. Sure enough, it was a man who had come to the city I'd been living in at the time to go to graduate school. He was sent by the party to go to North America to graduate school. He was to go to Harvard, but it was too late to apply there, so he came to northern B.C., I thought it was pretty good. And there, I won't tell you the story, it's a great story, but I had the privilege of being a broker in his journey from being a member of the Communist Party to a member of the Jesus family. I reached out and, and, and he sent me a message almost immediately thanking me for connecting and updating me on where he was now. He's a pastor. And he reminded me of a statement I made one Sunday in a teaching that was, was a watershed point in his journey. Here's what he wrote. I remember clearly that the week you came back from a sabbatical, you preached a sermon. I was looking forward to it. And what you said was, Christianity is Christ. That's it. That's all. And then he said, in his pretty good English, which I truly advocate even today. That day, a penny dropped for him as to how clear, how simple, how comprehensive, how powerful this statement is. The good news of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Let's just look briefly at those identifying terms for, for Jesus. Uh, Jesus simply means Yahweh God. It's, it's salvation. Now, many Jewish boys had this name. This was a common name because that's what the Hebrew people believed. They, they wanted to be identified that, knowing that Yahweh is salvation. But along comes Jesus. And as we know from Matthew chapter 1, when, when uh, the angel came to Joseph, you've got to say, you've got to name him Jesus because he is the one who will be what everybody's looking for. Yahweh to be salvation. He is the God who saves. The next word, Christ, 
As we said, that, that's a translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, which, which meant uh, anointed one. In, in the Old Testament, three types of people were anointed, prophets, priests, and kings. Jesus is the one who brings all those together. But they also look forward to one who would come as, as the anointed leader of God's people, a new King David, to lead them back to God, to deliver them from all oppression. And then the title that actually is the dominant title for Jesus in the book of Mark, Son of God, or God the Son. Not Son of God like all people can become children of God, but Son in the sense of the one and only, as John says in, in, in chapter 1, verse 14, and, and chapter 3, verse 16. God the Son. In Mark's gospel, this is the climax of Jesus' title. As, as he come to... Jesus being baptized in chapter 1, verse 11, as we read. There's this, this transcendent voice, God himself speaking into it, saying, this is my son whom I love. Later on in the book, chapter 9, when they, a couple of the core disciples and Jesus have this experience on the mountain, and, and it's, a, it's a sort of an other world kind of experience. And once again, there's this voice that says, this is my son, listen to him. There's this thread throughout the book where, where Jesus confronts these evil spirits, these demons. His first miracle, the end of chapter 1, is a miracle which demonstrates that he came to defeat the powers of evil, to fulfill Genesis 3.15, remember? And the demon in this man says, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Chapter 3, we read that whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Chapter 5, a man who's possessed by the evil one says, What do you want from me, Jesus, Son of God? And it was his claim to be the Son of God, chapter 14, that got him executed for blasphemy. The high priest looks at him and said, who do you think you are? The son of the blessed one? He wouldn't even use the name God. And Jesus said, I am. You're done. But after he died, it was a Roman centurion, one of his executioners, who said the words, surely this man was the Son of God. It's this God the Son part that Mark, in his introduction, has to show them that, that they actually should have seen, and, and, and that's what ties the, uh, all, of, all of the rest of that first paragraph together, actually the first couple of paragraphs, from 2 right down to, to verse 13. If you want to look at it as I, I flip through it, it, it's why he refers to, to John the Baptist they knew from the prophet Isaiah that when God came, someone, a messenger, an Elijah figure, would come ahead of him to prepare the way. Prepare the way for whom? They had always seen this as a, as a human King David figure. But John says, hey, it said prepare the way for the Lord. 
Can't you see it, says Mark? He wasn't just talking about a human. It was, it was the Lord, the Son of God. People wanted to follow John the Baptist. He was a powerful preacher. And he says, no, 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 no. I just baptized you with water, but one who is greater than I is coming after me. I baptize with water, but the Son of God will baptize you with the Holy Spirit of God. It's, it's validating this Son of God piece that is what Mark references in Jesus' baptism. This transcendent voice says, you are my son whom I love. Folks, you should have seen it. And it's the Son of God piece that shows he is the new beginning the new Adam, because he's above Adam. That's what the temptation is all about. For 40 days, Jesus goes into the wilderness alone, just like 40 years that the Israelites spent in the wilderness, and the evil one takes him on with some very tempting offers, and Jesus wins. Only God himself can defeat the evil one. That's the whole point of that introduction. Now, let's come back to the question we asked before we read the entire passage. How is it that Mark introduces us to Jesus? What is the characteristic or the quality of Jesus that ties this whole passage together? Isn't it leadership? What Mark is presenting as he begins his book, the central purpose of the book, the core and the central more Jesus factor is that Jesus is the leader that my heart is longing for. And that is why Mark calls this a gospel. That's why Jesus calls his central message gospel. Good news. Did you know that the word gospel is actually a, a leadership reference? The word gospel simply means good news. That's the translation of it. But it's good news in a very specific kind of way. Down to, down to verse 14. We see Jesus introducing himself. And how does he introduce himself? After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And here's the good news of God, the kingdom. Now that's a leadership reference. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. I am the king, the son of God, Messiah, the king, the leader. He presents good news in terms of the leader they've been waiting for. And what is his call to his disciples? Come, follow me. Now that's a leadership reference. Follow, get in line behind me, submit to me. When Jesus said that he was good news, their minds would have thought of two things. You see that word good news is a bit of, a, a, a bit of almost a technical term in their language. Both in the Jews' language from the Old Testament, but also in the Roman world in which they lived. They would have thought, first of all, of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 40, in that great statement, comfort, comfort my people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, her sin has been paid for. Verse 9, O Zion, messenger of good news, messenger of gospel. Shout from the mountaintops. Shout it louder, O Jerusalem. Shout and do not be afraid. Tell the towns of Judah, your God is coming. Yes, the sovereign Lord is coming in power. He will rule with a powerful arm. And they can almost hear the horse's hoops as the king is riding in. Good news is a ball about a leader who is coming to rule with power. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God is near. 
repent and recognize the good news. Now, that's from their own prophet written hundreds of years earlier, but that term also was used in the Roman world into which Jesus came, into which the church was born and, and oppressed. When a military general defeated an enemy in battle, a herald would be sent out proclaiming through the streets of the towns and villages good news of victory and pumping the tires of this military general who had just won the defeat. When Caesar Augustus was born just nine years before Jesus, he was a contemporary of Jesus, his birth was heralded as gospel, good news for the world. He was even called a son of God. Gospel is a leadership word, good news about the leader your heart is longing for. Mark's entire gospel is about how Jesus demonstrates he is the leader over everything, how he proved himself worthy to be your leader, and how in his death he claimed me, rescued me, says Paul, from the kingdom of darkness to be my leader. Let's wrap it up. What does that involve? Well, let, let's just look at this passage and, and see from this passage the kinds of things that it involves to allow Jesus to be the leader your heart was longing for. Number one, we need to see Jesus for who he really is and, and, and give him myself to him as leader. I, ca I can't have more of Jesus if I don't have Jesus. He's not just someone who helps me achieve my goals. He's not just someone who will give me a virtual hug and make me feel good when I need it. He's not just someone who inspires me to do my best. He's not just the ultimate example to follow or a teacher with good principles to live out. He is everything I ever needed and he has come into my wilderness, into my fight to fight for me to claim me for Him. I, I love the way the Alpha Course begins because it begins the way the Gospel of Mark begins and, and it, it just basically explores who must Jesus be given what we know about Him. Once you figure out who Jesus really is, the rest should fall into place. But we struggle and we'll figure out why in a few minutes. Well, we'll figure out why now. Because <laughs> the, the second step is to live life in what Jesus talks about as a repenting kind of way. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, I, I want to stop there for a little bit and talk about how Jesus presents the good news. You know, you know how... Uh, we've so often been taught to present the good news. Well, to present the good news, you've got to start with the bad news, right? You are a sinner. Is that true? Well, yeah. Yeah, it's true. Is that how Jesus presents the good news? He does it the other way around. Hey, I'm here. The kingdom of God is here. The one your heart has been looking for is here. And as people begin to see him for who he is, they say, oh my goodness, I fall so short. Oh my goodness, I need it so badly. It's only after he 
shows them who he is. But he says, you know what? In order to tap into that, you've got to repent. And repent is a leadership word. I'm just going to review what we talked about two months ago as we were looking at Jonah chapter 3, a chapter which talks about turning uh, and following a new leader. It comes from the book by Jan Hedinger called Follow Me. I, I love the way he talks about repenting because it, it talks about it in the leadership language like Jesus is. Uh, and he, he talks about it coming in several stages. We, we often begin with the, uh, what he calls a frustration level. Uh, you know, I'm just, I'm sick of it. I, I, I need help. I know I need something. Remember, one guy was telling me his story of how he met Jesus. He was a hippie from California who ended up in the Baja, Mexico, surfing and stuff like that. And, and he had a fishing boat and took these guys from the States out fishing all the time, um, marlin and all that kind of stuff. And he was uh, basically a hippie just living off the boat. And uh, um, he was... Um, he was uh, out in a boat one time um, after a weekend of whatever, and one of these guys said, I heard him tell a bit of a story, um, and uh, this guy looked at him and said, you need Jesus. He looked at him and says, Jesus? I know I need something. But that got him on a journey. That's where he was, help. We expect God to do something, and because God loves us, he often does something to... He does something to help us keep our head above water, but he, what He wants us to do is to come to Him with deeper issues as well. And, and because we have turned, at least in a little way, there seems to be this relief, at least for a little while. But the more we're exposed to the truth and love of God and Jesus, the more ownership we take of our situation, the more we're pulled, if we're authentic, into a deeper level. And, and there it, it becomes sort of like guilt and grief. And we say, wow. I didn't realize how badly I'd screwed things up. I am so sorry about it. And when we really look into our hearts and see how far we are from really reflecting God and who He made us to be, it's, it's overwhelming. And we recognize that we need more than help. We need forgiveness and another chance. But we still have not come to, to the deepest level of repentance. John says, I'm, I preach a gospel of forgiveness, but so there's something more that Jesus is going to preach at you. There's another level that we try to avoid at all costs because our natural fear is that it will destroy our sense of self, our, and, and, and in a sense, in a good sense, it will. It's what we might call the control level. I surrender. I give up control of my inner self to the one who died to make me as I need a new leader. Colossians chapter 2 Paul says, God delivered us from the domain, the realm of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom of His dear Son. A kingdom is a place where the king is charged, is in charge. You can't have faith in Jesus and what He's done without giving up control. I love the way Paul Tripp puts it. The only way we will ever be in our proper place is if Jesus is, Jesus is first in His proper place. That's repentance. And what is it we need to repent of? We, we, we so often think it's, we need to repent of, of a bunch of individual sins. And yeah, we need to confess those. But repentance in more, is more than confessing individual sins. 
repentance is the confessing of the sin behind the sins. I need to switch roles with Jesus. It's, it's all about my self-will, my self-interest. The reason we don't have enough and we constantly want more is we are full of ourselves, our dreams, our needs, our expectations. More of Jesus. You don't get more of Jesus. It's that Jesus gets more of you. More of Jesus means less of me. That's why. The whole gospel of Mark moves towards chapter 9 when Peter has this aha moment and says, you are the Christ. Jesus says, okay, if you understand that, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's repentance. You know, even when we know our tendency is to be full of ourselves, and admit it, we are always still more full of ourselves than we realize. Friday. As I said before, LaDonna's mother died in the early hours of the morning on Friday, and she's been with her for two weeks, taking care of her and her father, and she passed, passed away at home, and so they had a hospice set up. It, it was a lot of work. And the morning after she died, I was talking to her, and, and I was trying to think of some way that I could, from here, help her with her weariness. And, and, uh, and an insight just came to me. I said, you know, if the funeral's going to be next weekend, that's a whole week. You can make the funeral arrangements today, which was Friday. And then why don't you come home? Even for like two nights, you can sleep in your own bed, get out, get out of that space for a while and just hit the refresh button in whatever way you need to. And then Sunday night or Monday, we can go back together and take on the week. She was quiet, too quiet. And I thought, oh man, she's even too tired to, tired to think. And so I became a little bit more take charge-ish. I, I can do that. And I said, uh, honey, I really think that's what you need. You won't get the rest you need there. So, um, and she must have felt like I was getting a little pushy. She said, you know, I'm not saying no. If you really want me to, I will. But right now, that just feels like even more work. And I thought I'd, no, then, then she ended off by saying, you got to tell me why. Well, I thought I'd already given her a great why. So I very wisely said, you know, just think about it. You, you, you're going to go have a, go to sleep for a bit, take care, do the funeral arrangements this afternoon, and tonight let's talk. And after I hung up, I thought, how can I help her see it? Later on that evening, as I was processing how I might present it to her in a way that she saw that she really needed to come home, something in me said, Mal, is this what you think she needs, or is this what you need? Are you doing this for her, or for you? I got on the phone, before I could say anything, she said, I've thought about it, and I'll do it, but you have to tell me why. I said, hold it, hold it. <laughs> I thought about it too, and I honestly think I—I I honestly thought I was thinking of you, but I think I was thinking more about me. We are so full of ourselves, even when we don't recognize it, and we use Jesus to become more full of ourselves. It's too quiet in here. <laughs> Number three, and I'm just going to brush over this quickly because. Uh, Time's up, uh, and we'll get into it later. 
we got to take off our failure lens. That's part of what, it, what the impact of being baptized with the Holy Spirit. John, John said, I've come to tell you that God can bring you back to zero. Forgive your sins. But Jesus is going to fill you with the Holy Spirit, baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You see, Mark, and as we, as, as we, Mark himself, but as we see the, go through the book of the disciples, the disciples are constantly living through this failure lens. How many of us are living through a failure lens? We come to a place like this and we do everything we can to hide it with a smile. We deny it. We cover it up with our work. We defend ourselves. And the most vulgar one as people who follow Jesus is we parade a false humility. Our failure lenses often cover up underneath control self-issues. At minimum, those should be key occasions in which Jesus is inviting us to say, repent. Believe the good news. I got it. I want to be your leader. I can walk you through this. It doesn't matter whether you think you're a failure. I am in you empowering you to do what I want you to do. The, the, the whole idea of baptism of the Holy Spirit is, at minimum, it's two things. Number one, it's like it was for Jesus. You are my beloved son. It's an affirmation from God, the, the Spirit in us, as Paul says in Roman 8, Romans 8, it's, it's a witness within our spirit that we are God's children. That's enough. And the second thing, if Jesus' baptism is any model for it, is that the Spirit in us is our empowerment for victory over evil through surrendering in every situation to Jesus, where He is the leader in us. What's your more Jesus opportunity?